Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have John Roth on the show again. John is Edward J. Sexton Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have John Roth on the show again. John is Edward J. Sexton Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Claremont McKenna College, and he and I first met a little over a decade ago at the Holocaust Education Foundation's Holocaust Boot Camp, at least that's what we called it, at Northwestern University. He was an instructor there, uh, and it was a wonderful two weeks. It's an experience I heartily recommend for those of you in the audience who are grad students or faculty members. Uh, and John and, I, John and I have kept in touch since then. Um, he's generously agreed to be on the show twice before, once with Carol Rittner to talk about their edited compilation on rape as a weapon of war, and once to talk about the Oxford Handbook of Holocaust Studies with Peter Hayes. Uh, and I should say, uh, Peter and I have an interview time scheduled out here for the next couple weeks, and so he'll be on the show here in maybe a month or so. This time, we're talking about the new vet volume John edited with Leonard Grobe. The title of that is Losing Trust in the World, Holocaust Scholars Confront Torture. And the book assembles a dozen or so of the preeminent thinkers and researchers to say to see what, what can be said about torture in the light of the Holocaust. The contributors come from several countries. They include philosophers, historians, and academics who specialize in religious studies. And I found the result fascinating, uh, in some ways because of the common perspectives they share, in other places because of the disagreements that emerge out of this discussion. And so, so we're going to talk about that today, and I'm looking forward to it. And so with that, John, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us again on New Books and Genocide Studies. Kelly, thanks for having me on the show again. I'm looking forward to your interactions, and uh, we'll hope that we can make something good happen here. So traditionally, John, we I asked uh, at the start, guests to say something about themselves, and and you've already done that. Um, but maybe we can just give you a chance. It's been a while. Um, maybe you can say a little bit of something about about how you came to be a philosopher and how you came to be interested in the Holocaust. Sure, um, we're talking to each other in um, April of 2017, and it was just 50 years ago. Uh, this spring that I was finishing up my very first year of teaching at uh, what was then Claremont huh. Men's College, uh, became Claremont McKenna College when it went co-educational. I spent most of my uh, scholarly teaching career at that place, which proved to be a very good place for me to do my work. I became uh, um, really interested in the Holocaust uh, about six years after I started uh, teaching in Claremont, but uh, 
prior to that, an influence on me had been uh, my reading of a book called After Auschwitz, which mm-hmm. was published in 1966. Its author was uh, Richard Rubenstein, who is still alive and working mm-hmm. uh, as a scholar as we speak. Um, his book was one of the early ones to uh, address the religious implications of the Holocaust, in particular, uh, what the Holocaust in Rubenstein's view uh, did to traditional thinking about uh, the God of, of uh, history. That book uh, influenced me, but uh, it didn't spark the kind of turn that my uh, career and personal life took uh, a few years later when at the suggestion of a former teacher of mine, Frederick Sontag, uh, I started reading the works of uh, Elie Wiesel. Mm. This was in the early summer of 1972, just a few weeks actually before my uh, second child was hmm. born, and um, the reading of the, of those writings by Wiesel uh, created what I refer to as a kind of collision in my life. Um, my life at that time, I was in my early 30s. My academic career was underway and flourishing. Family life was good. Everything was moving in kind of an American dream kind of direction for me. And uh, I found myself, uh, through the suggestion of my former teacher, plunged into uh, the world of the destruction of family, the destruction of uh, senses of the future, destruction of hope, kind of the the antithesis of what I was experiencing in my own personal life. And uh, the collision that resulted from that resulted uh, in a kind of um, professional and uh, existential turn in my life. And I became, as I now uh, sometimes call myself, a philosopher who got tripped up by history, <laughs> and in particular tripped up by uh, Holocaust history. And uh, this, this, uh, you know, reoriented my my life and my research and my teaching and uh, everything else that's followed since. So it's been a long time that I've been involved. Uh, uh, in the, the study of the Holocaust and, and genocide and human rights issues, and uh, as our discussion today suggests, that um, took me, among other things, into uh, an interest in torture. So, so I hadn't anticipated asking this, but it seems an appropriate question for the book. Um, so, so you talk about having young children, and, and, and you and I know from chatting just a moment ago that I have, I have a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old, and they're just now old enough to start looking at the books on my bedside table. So, so how did you talk to your children about your interest, and, and, and how did you frame that discussion? Well, it still is uh, an ongoing uh uh, part of my life, uh, I live very close by to where my daughter lives, who I referenced a moment ago. Uh, she's now the mother of a 14-year-old mm. uh, girl who's a granddaughter. Um, I had the experience last year in uh, her seventh grade year mm. to work with a teacher in the local middle school here who was doing a, a substantial unit on the diary of Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. 
And so I found myself uh, in a classroom again, but this time with a group of seventh graders, uh, 13-year-olds at the time, where my role was not so much to discuss the diary, but to try to provide some context about World War II, about Nazism, about anti-Semitism, uh, and uh, the related things that that had to do with the uh, saga of Anne Frank and, and her diary. So uh, what I've found is that uh, in, in talking with my own family about uh, the work that I do, uh, is that there's always a kind of puzzlement on their part about <laughs> how they're husband, how their father, how their grandfather, you know, spend so much time kind of working on these really, really dark topics. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they're, they're intrigued and interested in it. And, uh, I've had the chance, I think, to extend my teaching, uh, in part to my own family, as Mm -hmm. well as to students who have ventured into my classroom. But it is an odd thing. I, here, here's a semi-humorous thing. My wife still teases me about how I owe her because <laughs> uh, we spent our 25th wedding anniversary. We, on, the, on the actual day of our 25th anniversary, we were in Auschwitz. <laughs> and uh, this was because of some work that I was doing. And um, my wife was along. She went with me on that on that trip. And... Uh, so she gets it, but at the same time, she keeps reminding me that I owe her. <laughs> well, you know, my my 25th anniversary is coming up here in a year and a half, so I now consider myself having been given permission to take my wife to Auschwitz for our anniversary. <laughs> yeah, well, you better ask her about that, too. <laughs> you, you said you were a philosopher tripped up by history. Um. I'm wondering what that background and interest in philosophy, how that how that shapes your approach to a historical event like the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, well, I remain uh, in my own mind uh, a philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, albeit one who uh, engages uh, deeply with uh, uh, historical uh, topics and, and research. Uh, and uh, here's what I would emphasize about the importance of philosophy to me. I think that philosophy is, among other things, the the keeper of the key questions. Mm. The questions about uh, how do we know things? Um, what's right? What isn't? Uh, how do we wrestle with the difference between right and wrong? Um, Philosophy always has questions that can't be answered by history, let's say, Mm -hmm. by historical scholarship. Um, And that's been one of the things that uh, has led me to emphasize the importance of philosophy when we uh, are studying things like the Holocaust and other genocides and mass atrocities. Um, because we we often find ourselves, I think, confronting the fact, and I think it's a fact, that what we're studying is so deeply and fundamentally wrong. We study events over and over again, if we're Holocaust and genocide scholars, that should not or ought not to have happened. 
And yet they did happen. And they affect, you know, the world that we live in and the future that we face. So uh, the questions that philosophy brings to the table here um, are questions about, well, why do these things happen? Mm -hmm. Even how did they happen? Uh, What do we have to think about to even begin to approach understanding of of these events? Now, that's uh, something that the study of history can do and is essential for doing, but... um, History raises questions that can't be answered by more visits to archives or mm-hmm. to uh, you know hi- historical uh, accounts. The questions that are raised may not be answerable by any human inquiry, but they certainly invite uh, uh, inquiry of that kind. So, for example, one of the things that I've worked on very recently has to do with what I call the failures of ethics. And um, I'm struck by the fact that uh, it seems to me that the atrocities that we study when we explore the Holocaust and genocide and torture nearly always involve the uh, overriding or the subversion or the undermining of uh, ethical imperatives or mm-hmm. ethical intuitions that we have. Um, one of the things about torture that uh, I think the scholars in our, our book uh, came, you know, we, we didn't come to this conclusion. We had it, but um, it was reinforced, and that is that torture is not good. Some people may argue that it's necessary, mm-hmm. But it, it, that doesn't even make it a good thing. Mm-hmm. And yet torture is taking place even as we speak in, in the world today. So um, some of the questions that have haunted me, especially as a philosopher, uh, have to do with why is it that uh, our ethical impulses and our ethical institutions and our traditions and teachings about ethics seem to be so fragile mm-hmm. and so easily overridden and so uh, easily subverted and uh, turned to um, uh, nefarious uh, ends. So these are, are issues, I think, that uh, call out for uh, philosophers to uh, engage with but in order to do that, uh, philosophy has to be willing to run the risks of really immersing uh, itself in history. Mm-hmm. And my quarrel with my own discipline of philosophy is that too often it shies away from the historical. And uh, uh, so I'm glad that I became tripped up by history in the way that I have done as a philosopher because I think getting tripped up by history makes philosophy stronger and better uh, at the same time that uh, that history uh, leads eventually to questions that go beyond history and that become the questions that philosophers are most interested in. You've so so you've written an, uh, a, a, a large number of books, um, and you've been working in this uh, study group or seminar. I'm not sure how you characterize it, but um, on the Holocaust for quite a while. Um, why, why is it important to you that that and your co-authors, right, the people you? Why do you think we should be particularly thinking about torture now? 
Yeah, um, it's a good question, and, and let me uh, approach it by explaining a little bit um, uh, how the how the book called "Losing yeah. Trust in the World" uh, came about, because because uh, that's integral to your mm-hmm. to your query here. Um, since the middle part of the 1990s, I've been part of a uh, seminar that gathers every other year at a place called Roxton College, which is uh, located in a beautiful uh, English village about uh, 50 miles north of Oxford in, in, in the United Kingdom. Hmm. Um, this seminar was um, uh, conceived and originated by uh, Leonard Grobe, who's the, my co-editor in the book on torture, and uh, his friend and colleague, uh, Hank Knight, who uh, is the executive director of the Cohen Center for uh, Holocaust and Genocide Studies at uh, Keene State College in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Hank and Lenny got the idea that it would be interesting to uh, gather together a group of about 35 um, scholars who were interested in the Holocaust and genocide uh, to meet and talk about... uh, you know, whatever topics were on their mind mm-hmm. um, in a kind of small group, quiet kind of setting that that would uh, involve being together for the greater part of a week and having enough time to, to talk and engage with one another. When, when the group first convened uh, in 1996, I think it was, uh, one interesting thing that happened was that, that small groups began to form, mm. and these groups became uh, kind of through a, a natural process of evolution and growth, um, what I would call writing circles. The, the, the people in the group decided that, yeah, it was great to be together there in, in Roxton, um, but we needed to do something that went beyond that. And so one of the things that some of us committed to do was to to write on different topics and uh, share our writings with each other. Out of that uh, commitment emerged eventually a uh, a book series Mm -hmm. that uh, has been primarily published by the University of Washington Press in Seattle. I've been one of the co-editors of that series. The other person is uh, David Patterson, who was also a member of the original Roxton group. David uh, is a very fine scholar teacher, now uh, working at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, So over a period of almost 20 years now, uh, this book series has some 10 titles in it, including a couple of volumes that were published uh, elsewhere, not not by the University of Washington Press. Hmm. Several of the books in the series have the uh, quality that can be found in the book called Losing Trust in the World. That is, uh, the the group of people involved in uh, some of these books decides to take up a topic that isn't necessarily uh, about the Holocaust, but that has some connection to uh, study of the Holocaust. And uh, we, we write a, about the topic, 
share our writings with each other, and the goal is to try to emerge from this with a with a book that has a, a what we call a dialogical quality, because in the writing process, we actually respond to each other in writing. So we've done a number of these. Uh, we did a volume, for example, that focused on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, another volume in the series is uh, a kind of trialogue that uh, involves uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scholars. Uh, some of the work on that book was done at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. We're currently working on one that uh, focuses on refugees. Mm-hmm. And we recently published the, the volume that uh, we're talking about today that is about torture. Now, what's the what's the connection between the Holocaust and these these topics? Well, the idea with the uh, torture volume was that first of all, there was a group of people in the Holocaust seminar at Roxon who had an interest in torture, mm-hmm. and we we discovered this by talking to one another, and then we we thought, well, we are also uh, scholars of the Holocaust and genocide, so what might we have to say from the perspective of our scholarly expertise about uh, uh, about about torture. How would our uh, expertise on Holocaust studies and genocide studies lend itself to reflecting in a way that might be of some utility on a topic like torture? So we decided to try writing on this and and to share with each other, as we had done before, what we came up with. And uh, the result eventually was uh, the book that we called uh, mm-hmm. Losing Trust in the World. So uh, so that's the, the little bit about the genesis of the mm-hmm. volume. Mm-hmm. What, we're, what we are, we're not saying that our interest in the Holocaust or other genocides makes us experts in these other topics. Uh, what we're exploring is whether our expertise on the Holocaust and uh, genocide studies lends itself to perhaps having some insights about topics that are maybe more contemporary and more current, Mm. such as torture. And it's a little bit of an experiment to see, you know, what emerges or where, where the inquiry goes. But uh, we found as we've, we've done projects of this kind together that uh, the outcome uh, is of interest. Mm-hmm. And we hope that's true in the, in the volume that uh, we've done on torture. Mm-hmm. Now, I might add just, just, just one more point here before, before you know, we, we go sure. in, in perhaps a different direction. The title of this book, A Losing Trust in the World, mm. is taken from um, the writings of a Holocaust survivor uh, whose literary name is Jean Amari. Um, Jean Amari uh, and his book, At the Mind's Limits, contains uh, what I regard as one of the uh, classic texts on torture in in the whole body of writing that exists on torture. Amory was um, an Austrian 
Jew from a highly assimilated family. He was uh, trained and, and practiced philosophy as kind of an academic uh, specialization. Uh, in the mid-1930s, at about the time the Nuremberg laws were passed in uh, Germany, uh, Amory sensed that uh, Austria was probably pretty high on history on mm-hmm. Hitler's list for takeover, and Amory, in retrospect, began to refer to himself as a dead man on lead in light of uh, the Nuremberg laws. He eventually fled to uh, Belgium where he um, was engaged in uh, resistance against uh, the Nazi regime after uh, Belgium was was occupied by the Germans. And he was arrested by the Gestapo, tortured. And when the uh, Gestapo discovered that he didn't have anything of value uh, to them, but they had learned that he was a Jew, uh, he was deported to Auschwitz. He survived Auschwitz uh, and went on to have a uh, important uh, career as a writer and commentator, including uh, doing some radio shows that were uh, broadcast in uh, Germany. And uh, one of the uh, most important chapters in his uh, writing is this essay that he simply calls Torture. That essay became, for the writers in the book um, that we're talking about today, that became kind of the anchor. All of the essays, in one way or another, uh, reference or reflect upon or uh, think about uh, Jean Amaury and his uh, his essay on torture. Amaury said that um, when he was tortured, and he suspects that uh, this is true of anyone who is tortured, that uh, one of the results of torture is a loss of trust in the world, by which he meant uh, uh, loss of um, confidence that that. Uh, uh, help will be available to you, loss of confidence in traditions of an ethical or political kind that would seem to uh, stand for human rights and for uh, the uh, integrity and the dignity of the human person, uh, things of that kind. So we took the uh, title for this volume uh, from Amari. And uh, the book is called Losing Trust in the World, Holocaust Scholars Confront Torture. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of a canon of of Holocaust literature. And you, you mentioned um, the Diary of Anne Frank, and I will be taking my students here in about a month to Amsterdam to the Anne Frank House. And, of course, Wiesel that you mentioned, and, and my daughter has similarly read Wiesel in middle school. Why is Amari... Or is Amory part of that canon? He seems to me somebody that professional, that Holocaust scholars know instinctively, but many people who who don't spend their lives thinking about this do not. Yes, I think he's definitely uh, part of the canon uh, for people who are interested in 
uh, reflective yeah. writings about mm -hmm. the Holocaust, uh, uh, even writings that are reflective in an explicitly uh, ethical sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but he doesn't have, he doesn't enjoy the readership of uh, Wiesel or Levy, Primo Levy, mm -hmm. uh, or Anne Frank, uh, you know, people of that kind. Um, and one of the reasons why I think that's the case, I've I, I come to the conclusion that I'm going to give you in a second here as a result of my own teaching, uh, Amory is a very dark writer. Mm. Uh, there's there's uh, very little of, of a hopeful, let alone a redemptive uh, uh, motif in his in his reflections. Uh, you can see this in his uh, commentary on torture. That the, that the result of torture in Amory's experience was a loss of trust in the world. Mm -hmm. you know, he just, it, it devastated him. He later went on to write about uh, aging. He wrote about suicide. Huh. He's one of these uh, 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 tragic Holocaust survivors who eventually took his own life. Mm -hmm. So um, his writings uh, uh, reflect that kind of, of darkness. And uh, Ethically speaking, um, this is kind of interesting. Amory was never interested in uh, reconciliation. He was never interested, certainly not interested in anything involving forgiveness of anybody. Uh, his ethical category was resentment. Uh, he he remained uh, uh, resentful of the Holocaust and of the torture that it inflicted. And uh, there's this kind of deep-seated uh, seething uh, anger in his writing. It's muted, it's, you, you, but you feel it when you read him. And uh, his, his word for this was resentment. He deeply resented what had happened. Uh, he says he says this in an, in an uh, understated way at one point. He says, "What happened happened, but that it happened cannot be so easily accepted." And th this uh, uh, anger, resentment, uh, I have found uh, immensely appealing in in many ways uh, as as an ethical thinker. That is, he did not want people ever to um, allow their memory of the Holocaust to be without resentment that it happened. I, I think it's it's profound, and and yet there is something uh, uh, very dark about this resentment because. Uh, Amory uh, went on to say that he knew that this resentment was futile. He, he, he often liked to talk about how, uh, you know, the past is, the past will recede. People, uh, the, the past does not have the the privileged uh, temporal component that the future has, and that people are going to think about the future. 
and therefore the uh, resentment that he felt so strongly and that he uh, wanted to be part of the of the post holocaust ethic i think that he that he stood for he felt this this too was a kind of losing cause and i've been kind of haunted by uh by that uh as i've uh, thought about his um writings and uh and in his essay on torture in particular amory would be one who would say um uh, he says at one point uh somewhere even at this very moment someone is being tortured yeah. mm-hmm. he never I, i think he he never had any illusions that torture would ever go away but he resented it and uh so that that uh, motif kind of became the the anchor uh in holocaust studies that mm-hmm. uh that that influenced and governed in the, in effect the writing that people went on to do in the book. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. In in my mind I often I often think about it in in conjunction with Primo Levi's later book, The Drowned and the Saved, which is as yeah. you say reflective and and I don't know dark or depressing or I don't know what the right word is, but um but your book so so your book is organized around three big questions. Um and I'm going to do the impossible or ask you to do the impossible. <laughs> the the uh position I get to be in as the host. Um maybe let's think about them each for five or six minutes or so, recognizing sure. that that in fact all of the listeners should run out and get the book and read it for themselves. But but the first section, I mean we've been talking about this a lot. The first section asks a really simple question. What is torture? So is there a simple answer? Yeah. Um well yes and no. Um the 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 question what is torture uh looks like it uh is asking for a definition mm. and uh is asking for words that somehow uh identify what torture is and that's very important. Um uh and I'll I'll, I'll try to illustrate that in just mm-hmm. a second. But it's also fair to say that uh whatever else torture is, it's something that uh, words alone can't can't pinpoint and can't describe. Because of this goes back to Amory and his his experience of torture uh was that, you know, as he said, it destroys trust in the world. So it it, it there's an experiential dimension to this that is uh is devastating and uh destructive and uh goes so deep down that uh, probably it eludes words. So uh but but to keep it a little bit on the on the on the word side of things, uh I had an interesting email uh just a few days ago from uh my good friend Michael Berenbaum who mm-hmm. will be known to many of your listeners one of the great uh uh Holocaust scholars um and uh people who has uh, people who have done amazing work in developing uh memorials and museums that focus on uh the Holocaust and other uh other genocides so Michael uh wrote a, a brief message to me and said I need a favor he said I I'm working on some kind of a I think a museum project he didn't identify it in detail but he said I need here's what he told me he said I need a 40 a 445 
character <laughs> caption on torture. Now, what he meant was, it's not 445 words, he said. It's the characters. It's like each letter and space would be a character. So wow. it's very short. It's a caption. Yeah. So I expect it's for a photograph or for something. So he said he needs us on torture. So he said, would, could you please do this for me? You've, you've worked on this book on torture. And um, I said, okay, sure, I'll give it a try. Now, I found this harder to do than um, it looked like it might be at first yeah. glance. But let me just share my, my mm-hmm. it's, it's less than 445 characters, actually. But this is what I said, and I, 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 I think this statement, very brief, kind of gets at uh, several dimensions of the question, what is torture? So here's what I wrote for, for Michael Berenbaum. I said, torture is an atrocity that inflicts severe pain and suffering, physical or mental, to coerce, punish, or terrorize. Nobody wants to be tortured, a fact that complicates if it does not falsify all attempts to justify torture. But right now, Somewhere, torturers, usually government-directed, are at work. What they do is worse than words can say. Moral protest and political resistance against torture are much-needed actions. So that was my, uh, you know, 445-character attempt to uh, state what I think torture is. And it involves um, uh, the attempt to define it using words to do that, but it also alludes to the fact that uh, whatever, whatever torture is, it's something worse than words can ever say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the that's the the dilemma that makes torture uh, such a uh, fraught reality in uh, in our world. Now, the uh, importance of defining torture is that uh, torture is understood to be in international law and also in American law for those of us who are you know, Americans, it's understood to be a crime. Mm-hmm. So in order for torture to be criminalized, you have to have words that define it. So the, the classic definition of torture is located in the United Nations Convention Against Torture, mm-hmm. which I think goes back to 1987, uh, and here I'll, I'll just read a few of the words from that, uh, that definition. The, the Convention Against Torture, the United Nations Convention Against Torture, defines torture as any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or a third person information or a confession. Mm-hmm. Now, it, that, that uh, convention goes on to say that 
torture is not confined entirely to the intention to try to obtain information or confession. It can be also used to punish, to uh, you know, to, to do almost anything that uh, that a um, an official or now we have to think about non-state actors want to do that would uh, have the effect of intimidating, coercing, terrorizing people. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's 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 broadly understood even though it's the case that uh, that um, a, a classical way to understand torture is that it is used to elicit um, information or to extract a confession that uh, someone in a position to be presumably able to to do either of those things, that is, confess to something that they've done that's wrong or provide information that might help to prevent a crime, um, it, it, it's the case that the understanding of torture is often uh, focused on uh, those kinds of circumstances. Hmm. But it's actually broader uh, in the way the UN Convention mm-hmm. uh, goes on to talk about it. So this is why torture is... Um, uh, an ongoing and even a contemporary topic uh, in the world today, and in particular, uh, again, for your listeners who are Americans, uh, in, in an American context. Because it has to do with uh, um, the belief that is quite widespread that somehow torture, as uh, President Trump would say, works, absolutely mm-hmm. works, mm-hmm. as he said repeatedly during the campaign and again uh, at the end of January of 2017. Well, so, and so that gets us to that next question um, is, is that, that, that the book addresses, and that, that is, is torture justifiable? Uh, which is a huge, big question that you can't talk about in five minutes. But I, but I guess maybe I'd start by saying, how do, how do philosophers try and think about that question? Yeah. Well, I think I think uh, I'll try to answer the, the philosophical part yeah. of it first. Um, for for sure, one thing that philosophers would ask is uh, is torture justifiable in in an ethical sense? That would, I mean, it would be a question that would lead right away to to ethical inquiry. Uh, is it is, can torture be justified in a way that uh, meets uh, ethical tests? Um, but uh, in addition, uh, anyone who thinks about torture critically here is going to have to uh, address the question of of, of its utility. Mm-hmm. You know, does it work? Mm-hmm. And uh, to do that requires you to, you know, get into actual uh, historical, uh, political circumstances to um, to see empirically uh, and to and to think empirically about uh, it, about the utility of torture. In the book, um, I would say the the authors. 
uh, are fairly, I, I put it this way, I think uh, all of the authors, there, there are 11 of us in the book, mm-hmm. would say that ethically speaking, torture is wrong. It, it, torture is not a good. It is not uh, something that uh, is, uh, is, is ever uh, capable of being elevated to saying that torture is a good thing to do. There's a difference of opinion in the in the uh, writers about whether torture, nevertheless, may be necessary mm. or may be useful. We we have the category of of a necessary evil, mm. or, or or the category of saying that well something is wrong ethically, but we might still have to do it. Uh, the fact that something is is ethically wrong may not be a sufficient reason to mm-hmm. uh, not to do it. So there's 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 that dilemma, and uh, there are some differences of opinion about about that uh, that reflect the the kinds of circumstances that we've seen that that lead someone like Donald Trump to be a kind of defender of torture, mm-hmm. even though you know, he is de- presently deferring to uh, his um, defense secretary, Mattis, and, and other people in the military who want to say, no, I can probably do better with a pack of cigarettes and a, and a, and a few cans of beer yeah. uh, in interrogating someone than I can do if I torture them mm-hmm. to get information. So... Um, but there is this kind of, you know, I would call it a temptation, a kind of belief to think, uh, and it has a long history behind it, because history has a torture. It isn't something that just came on the scene recently by any means. But, but the long history of it was that somehow you could get a reluctant person to give up the goods, to tell you the truth, to... Uh, Confess to a crime if that's what was on the table. If you inflicted massive uh, distress and pain and suffering upon them. Now, um, there, th- this is a, an, an argument uh, that uh, has to be waged uh, both on the ethical side and on the empirical side. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of evidence empirically that comes um, sometimes from scholarly research and sometimes from on-the-ground military practice that at the very least calls into question the efficacy of torture. That, you know, General Mattis may have it right, a pack Mm -hmm. of cigarettes and some alcohol uh, and conversation may get you much farther than... uh, you know, uh, inflicting uh, inflicting torture, or as the the euphemistic language, which always has to be watched, I think very closely, yeah. uh, enhanced interrogation techniques can accomplish. One of the one of the insidious things about torture is that it leads to um, the the most amazing rhetorical efforts. Yeah. To uh, justify uh, the infliction of pain and suffering 
without calling it torture. Mm-hmm. Uh, American history since 9-11 is, is full of this kind of thing. Uh, and these are documents that you can, you can get and access online uh, where uh, everyone is, uh, who's wanting to defend these enhanced interrogation techniques, of which waterboarding is sort of the poster child example, uh, go to great lengths to explain uh, not only the efficacy of such techniques, but to deny that they are torture. When in fact, in international law, and now in American law too, it's understood that they are torture. So, so it's it's a vexed and, and fraught uh, issue. Yeah. Uh, but the evidence uh, that is of a scholarly kind, this is interesting, uh, includes uh, research that has been done uh, fairly recently uh, by uh, uh, people in the field of neuroscience that want to. Uh, demonstrate the difficulty here is you can't really run the experiments, but it's, it's based on, you know, the best judgments that you can get. But there, there is uh, evidence in the neuroscience field here that uh, torture does things to the human brain that are not conducive to uh, accurate memory, hmm. for one thing, or to truth-telling on the other. So, um, uh, torture is, is happening as we speak. Uh, there are people who are prepared to argue for its efficacy, particularly if you can get by without naming the acts that you want to use as torture on the one hand, and on the other, uh, empirical evidence that calls into question the efficacy of torture, uh, and then you've got the whole ethical uh, dilemma that is important because um, it goes to the understanding of what kind of a culture does one want to be part of? What kind of a society does one want to identify with? Mm -hmm. Do do we want to be um, a society and a culture that tortures or not. Yeah. Well, and now, that's, goes, yeah, go ahead. If, if I can take it just one step back yeah. to the book, this goes back to Amarie, mm-hmm. who thought that uh, torture was of the essence of Nazism. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who have studied Amarie have, have uh, wondered about that. They've wondered, you know, what, what was he getting at? Uh, why did he think that? And was he correct in, in the assessment? I think what Amory was, was getting at was that uh, Nazism was predicated, especially with regard to Jewish life, uh, not only with, uh, with its destruction, not, not only with the destruction of Jewish lives, but with the destruction of Jewish tradition, which meant that uh, that the, that the uh, people who uh, were destined for death uh, needed to be degraded mm. 
before they died, and their traditions needed to be degraded. We think about, you know, why were the Nazis uh, hell-bent on uh, the destruction of things like uh, Torah scrolls and things of that kind? Uh, this is kind of part of, uh, of that dimension of, of the mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. I also think that Amory believed that uh, Nazism entailed um, the development of a human personality that was not only capable of torture, but willing and eager to do it as needed. Um, I think that's part of what he had in mind when he thought that uh, torture was um, an essential part of what he took Nazism to be. I mentioned he's a pretty dark thinker, and this would be another another aspect of, of that darkness, I think. I think it's hard to be a, I don't know what the opposite of dark, light or happy thinker is given this subject, but but I can see that. Um, and I just want to nod to a, an essay that we don't have time to talk about, but I think is appropriate here. Um, and that's, um, and I hope I'm getting her name right, Dorota Glowacka, Glowacka, I'm sorry. Yeah, Glowacka, uh-huh. Um, yes. Polish, I believe, who talks about the, the place where language falls apart and the implications of that falling apart. Um, yeah. But that, that maybe leads us to that, that third question. Um, and again, in the interest of time, um, while, uh, and again, there's a very interesting essay about um, attempts by therapists and others to get over, to help victims um, address the long-term consequences of, of, of torture. Uh, maybe I'll just ask you to stick to your essay then with this question about what can be done about torture. And, and, and you look at, at rape torture um, yeah. in R2P. So, so maybe can you talk about what you wanted to do with that essay and, and why talk about rape in this context? Yeah. Uh, let me back up uh, just for a second in a more yeah, general please. way about what, what can be done. Um, I think one of the, uh, the most uh, meaningful essays in the book um, is the one that uh, focuses on the attempts to do therapy with yeah. uh, torture victims. Um, This is uh, an essay um, written by Margaret Brearley, who has actually done some uh, work with uh, uh, torture victims. And so the the, the what can be done about torture question ranges all the way from uh, developing therapies that can help uh, torture victims to to cope to try to gain back some sense of trust in the world that, that torture has robbed them of uh, to the political uh, side of the spectrum that tries to um, uh, beef up resistance against uh, the practice of torture uh, all the way to the to the idealistic uh, hope. Uh, that I think everyone would agree with if they thought about it, and that would be that a world without torture would probably be a better world yeah. than the one that we that we have. So um, I be I became um, interested in thinking about uh, uh, my essay on on torture in uh, in in two dimensions um, of of the problem. Uh, one is the uh, way in which uh, t- 
torture, I think it's often and maybe long been this way, but certainly in in its more recent manifestations, uh, torture has become sexualized. Mm-hmm. That is, it has involved the use of uh, rape and other forms of uh, sexualized violence as a as a means of, of inflicting torture, uh, which is to say that uh, rape and other forms of sexualized violence are are used as means to uh, inflict uh, pain and 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 suffering of both physical and mental kind that uh, may sometimes be used to try to extract uh, information or confessions, but certainly have been used to coerce and to punish and to terrorize people. So much so now that uh, uh, rape, uh, for example, is understood uh, as an, an an example as a, as a form of torture. It, it isn't, uh, I've, I've had discussions with people about this, it isn't that rape is reducible to torture. Rape is, it has, it has its own uh, sexualized violence um, that goes beyond rape, has, has uh, qualities that are not reducible to anything uh, except, you know, horror and, uh, um, and, and atrocity, but uh, it's it's important to uh, uh, see that uh, rape and, and sexualized violence are now understood to be uh, part of torture and and even parts of genocide. So uh, international law and understanding uh, has been evolving and expanding to uh, include these. Uh, forms of of violence and uh, to interpret them as as involving and being under the um, rubric of torture in some cases. So I wanted to, um, as I said in in my essay, I said no book on the topic of torture could possibly be or could possibly approach completeness without uh, taking up the topic of uh, gender issues and uh, sexualized violence and rape in particular. So that's where I, you know, directed my attention. And then as I began to, you know, think about, okay, this is this is all really uh, um, atrocity in a in a big way. Uh, what can be done about it? I'd also been um, uh, working for a time on uh, the fragile but evolving a norm that is sometimes referred to as the responsibility to protect or in a short form as R2P. Um, this idea, which which has a foothold in international law now, uh, has had that status for about a decade, um, operates on the uh, idea that uh, when, when a nation uh, or a state uh, is unwilling or incapable of protecting its citizens against, uh, you know, mass atrocities or human rights abuses, then uh, the international community has the responsibility to uh, to protect, to to intervene, uh, to try to prevent uh, the worst from happening. So, uh, my essay on uh, 
rapist torture uh, turns to the idea of the responsibility to protect, uh, you know, to see what traction that idea might have uh, as uh, a response to torture, uh, as a, a an idea that might be important if we are going to have in effective uh, resistance against the atrocity of torture. So, so I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I want to jump off from that, um, and it would be wonderful to have a while to think about Syria in this context, and I, I'm not sure we do now, but, um, but I would encourage um, the audience, if you haven't had a chance to read Janine DiGiovanni's book about Syria, I think it's called The Morning They Came For Us. Um, it's got a both a, a, a nice, I don't know if nice is the right word, but a, a, a journalistic account of torture in Syria in a, in a kind of reflective um, effort to come to grips with what that means, um, which maybe is the jumping off place for one of the last couple questions. And, and here I want to refer to Suzanne Brown Fleming's essay. We've had Suzanne on the show before. Uh, and she's got an essay about Johann Baptiste Neuheusler. I think I've got that right. Um, and one of the really interesting things about this, your book, is, is structurally, is that that you in each chapter the 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 author completes her or his essay, and and then there are questions that the co-contributors ask about that. And and one of the questions really pushes Brown Fleming. Who, who has a family history of the Holocaust, um, of, of a grandfather who was a Nazi. And she's asked to reflect on um, what kind of responsibilities um, Neuhäusler, Neuho who was a Catholic priest who ended up in Dachau, had toward the torture that happens in Dachau. And by extension, what kind of responsibilities um, people in the present have. And Brown Fleming responds, um, I try to produce the, and this is a quote, I, I try to produce the fullest possible picture of the participants, victims, and surrounding circumstances of this piece of history as, above all, a memorial to the victims. Will this be useful, she asks? I don't know. Is it enough? No. And I could go on with the quote, but, but that's why I want to stop. Um, this is a really profound set of essays. Um, so let me ask you what the question Brown Fleming asks herself. Um, is this book enough? Uh, emphatically, uh, no. Uh, no. No book, no, uh, no words could, uh, could be enough where uh, something like torture is concerned. Um, and Amari is probably right that as long as uh, human beings exist in uh, political circumstances that involve conflict, the uh, temptation, if not the practice, to torture uh, to mm. torture will will be in the cards. But um, I think um, reflection on torture uh, pretty clearly will. Uh, lead a person to um, the conclusion that, as I, I said earlier, torture is never a good thing. 
uh, a world free of torture and the temptations that lead to it would be a better world than the one we have. Uh, so the impulse uh, to try to do something about torture can exist and can become intense. Then the question becomes, okay, what can anybody do about it? Yeah. And I think uh, um, the, the answer to that question is, well, all sorts of things can be done about it. Um, one of the things that uh, scholars can do is to, you know, write essays and produce a book that may have a, a effect in some small way how how its readers uh, think about these things and respond to them. But all of us uh, have multiple ways to uh, respond to a world that is uh, uh, savaged by torture. Uh, it, it can involve the way we uh, spend our money, the causes that we choose to support. Uh, it can involve... Um, uh, things like what Margaret Burley did, that is trying to figure out if there's a way to get involved in helping the victims of torture. Uh, it can involve uh, the ways we vote, the political leaders that we choose and back. Um, it, uh, there's no lack of things that, uh, that people can do if they're interested in um, in standing against uh, torture and its practice. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out which ones we're best uh, situated to do. One of the things that my uh, long years of teaching um, about the Holocaust and genocide uh, has, has led me to um, underscore is that it's always important to look to see where we have some leverage Mm -hmm. and then to make use of the leverage that we have. Uh, and everybody has some, if only uh, in the role of educating their own children or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how they talk to their spouse or something like this. Others, other people have more leverage. And some of us have, some of us have a lot of leverage. So it's a question of, of uh, choosing. And, and I guess the last thing I would say is... Um, the longer I live, the more uh, uh, the more I find myself uh, nourished by uh, Albert Camus, the French philosopher hmm. and writer, and uh, his um, his famous uh, myth of Sisyphus. Uh, you know, he took the story of the the uh, the Greek uh, figure of Sisyphus. Uh, who was uh, condemned to the fate of rolling a stone up the hill uh, only to have it fall back and mm -hmm. having to repeat that act to eternity because he had defied the fates and the gods and uh, had even tried to defy death itself. And uh, Camus writes about Sisyphus and says that uh, uh, when he thinks about Sisyphus having to go back down the hill and to deal with that rock again and push it back up the hill, he somehow imagines Sisyphus happy. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's a tough happiness, if, it, if that's the word for it. Camus insisted <laughs> it was. And uh, uh, so I, I 
I think that's where we are with with things like torture and other, and other mass atrocities. We may never be able to succeed in eliminating them altogether, but um, it's it's worth trying, uh, and we can take joy and and f- find joy perhaps, and definitely find meaning in resistance and protest mm-hmm. against things like torture. Well, I often end these interviews by asking guests, um, and I'm going to do this to you, uh, to suggest a book or two, or or maybe a movie or something else. Um, And I'm going to guess Amory is one of those. Um, Yeah. What was meaningful to you while you were writing this book, or or just in general, and you're you're thinking about the Holocaust and human rights? Okay. I want to go to the film side first, uh, if I can, because... um, there's there just a, anybody who wants to uh, search you know documentaries or films that involve torture uh in one way or another all you have to do is do google searches and you'll 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 get a lot um, one of the authors in our volume uh wrote about slumdog millionaire a film that yeah. i think won an academy award that um has a, a torture thread running through it um I am aware from some searching that I did preparing for your questions here that um, there's a series called 24. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this. I may check it out myself, but it apparently has torture motifs throughout mm-hmm. it. I've just finished watching the two seasons of the uh, alternate history uh, series called The Man in the High Castle, which yeah. uh, operates on the... Um, premise that Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan won World War II, and there's plenty about torture going on in, in that film. Um, what I, here's, here's what I think is the, um, the problematic feature of uh, some of the, the uh, fictionalized uh, um, films that, that in, involve tropes about torture. I think uh, they reinforce, unfortunately, the notion that torture works, mm-hmm. or they reinforce uh, another uh, uh, outlook that is undoubtedly mythical, and that is that people resist torture successfully. Mm. That, that, that we see the examples over and over again of the utterly courageous person who never breaks, who never, you know, gives up anything or never talks. Um, my hunch is that that's myth. And I say that partly because Amari certainly thought it was. He, when he describes what happened to him in, in torture, when he was tortured, one of the things he says almost immediately is, I talked. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say that what he talked about was, was it, it wasn't information, it wasn't confession, because he had nothing to say that was of any use to anybody, but he talked about all sorts of things. And my guess is that there's more truth in Amari's uh, uh, few words about that than there is in in uh, episode after episode of um, television filmmaking that involves torture where the uh, people being tortured are heroic and, you know, never crack and never uh, 
do anything other than than act in you know, courageous and heroic ways. But anyway, the the uh, the, the filmic cinematic. Uh, um, dealing with with torture all the way from documentary to you know science fiction and historical mm-hmm. fiction is is very full lots of things there on the book side um i'd mention you know three things three titles that that might be of helpful to might be helpful to people uh listening who are at various stages in their uh, interest in this topic. One is certainly Amory's book, At the Mind's Limits, and in particular his essay, uh, which is short, it's 20 pages or so, just simply called Torture. That's mm-hmm. been anthologized uh, in a number of places. There may even be just an online um, accessibility to it. And uh, if anyone is interested in torture, I, I regard Amory's reflection on it as uh, definitely one of the classics in in that area of writing. A very good uh, kind of introduction to um, the history and the uh, wide multi-dimensional uh, aspects of torture is uh, a book called The Phenomenon of Torture, uh, mm-hmm. edited by William Schultz, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, it's a good starting point uh, for someone who might be interested in, you know, learning about various dimensions of this uh, topic. And then the third one I'd mention is um, a book, uh, I think Harvard University Press is the publisher. Uh, the book maybe came out in 2015. It's called Why Torture Doesn't Work. Uh, its author is uh, an Irishman, I believe, named uh, Shane O'Mara, hmm. and uh, he is one of the people who's doing research on torture from a kind of cognitive science, neuroscience perspective, and uh, mounting the argument that uh, torture is uh, not efficacious uh, for reasons that are, are deep-seated in um, our our growing understanding of how the human brain works. Hmm. Um, so people who are interested in a, in a more kind of uh, technical, even uh, scientific, scholarly kind of approach uh, to uh, torture and questions about its efficacy might find that volume uh, worth delving into. Well, the end of the semester is approaching, and three days after graduation, I get on a plane with 14 undergraduates to go to Europe, which means I've got plenty of time to read, so maybe I'll take those along with me, but I'm not sure what kind of reputation that will get me on the plane if I'm carrying <laughs> those. But but this has been fascinating, John. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, um, and I hope whenever you're done with the next project, you'll come back and talk with us on the show again. Well, thanks again, Kelly, for having me and for uh, uh, doing the podcast on this on this uh, dark but important reality torture. Very All right, important. take care, John. You've been listening to an interview with John Roth about his new edited work, "Losing Trust in the World: Holocaust Scholars Confront Torture." 
If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll talk with Peter Hayes about his book, Why? Explaining the Holocaust. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.